It's uh, always nice as a speaker to have a few hours. You guys are all on this side, by the way. I'm going to turn just a little so we're all together. It's always nice to have a few hours break, uh, and so it's nice to have uh, a few hours break and a nice to come back. Uh, this is uh, my newest talk, uh, one called Parenting, Navigating Everything. Uh, the goal here is to really create and grow conversations, uh, but what I want to do is I want to explain how I got here because uh, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, so I have been speaking for 23 years, and I've been topical for my entire career. And then I began to realize about five years ago, this ongoing conversation would go like this. Like I'd speak like I did this morning on mental health, and somebody would come up afterwards and say, how do I talk to my kid about dating? And then I'd be doing my dating talk, and somebody would ask me about pornography. And it was always other conversations. And uh, it all kind of <laughs> came to head with this one night when a father came up after my mental health talk and said, Brett, how do I talk to my daughter about sex? That's a great question. And I went to answer him and he said, oh, Brett, sorry, by the way, she hates me. And I said, what? And he said, oh, she hates me. Forget about that, though. How do I talk to her? I'm like, no, 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 that's everything. If you don't have a relationship with your kid, you are not speaking to them about anything. Uh, and he didn't really know what to say to that. And I realized that the topical stuff I do is great, but from a parenting standpoint, there is these foundations that we need to address. Uh, and then I hit uh, high school with my own kids. First week of high school, one of my uh, daughter's friends tried to take her life that's not the way you want to begin grade nine. Uh, my son in grade nine was invited to a party. It said, bring your own alcohol right on the invitation. And I realized that there's just so many things we're needing to deal with as parents. And, and I wanted to look at how can we have a, a kind of a foundational talk on it. So a couple ground rules before we get into it. Uh, please be a good learner. Uh, please take notes and pictures of anything that you'd like to. Find your light bulbs. We're each different. We have different age kids. We have different kids. We're different adults. Uh, have opinions, and again, I'd rather you have a different opinion than me than have no opinion at all. And the last one just says YouTube. Uh, what it means is, is I'm doing these weekly YouTube videos, and if whatever I'm talking about has a video for it, I'm just going to say, like, there's, you'll see the logo up there, and you can go and interact with it later, and I'm not going to have to spend 15 minutes on a larger topic. One thing we need to address is called stock family syndrome. This is the idea uh, that we all do not look like stock photography. We also call this the perfect family myth. Like, look at those photos. Is that any of us? Like, we all hug facing forward, which is this one. Like, no one ever does that. Uh, the one on, on, like, the four people walking through the forest, you know, blurred, and then the, everyone's wearing hats and holding hands. Like, that doesn't exist. This is not normal. If I go for a bike ride with my family, my son pedals as fast as humanly possible. He's a kilometer ahead, and my daughter, I call her Pokey, she's meandering behind. If I'm alone, I'm kind of in trouble. Uh, but we do have the nuclear family, but we have many other things. We have many single moms, some single dads, but often we talk about single moms. Uh, we now have enough grandparents who are parenting that we actually have it being statistically significant. The stat that I read is 1% of children are now being actually raised by not their parents, but their grandparents. That's huge. That's a lot of children. Uh, I'm at a talk, and a grandfather walked up to me, and he said, uh, Brett, he said, I'm 75. He said, how do I talk to my, uh, my kids uh, about these things? And, and I said, what are you talking about specifically? He says, well, Snapchat. What is this thing called Snapchat? And I remember laughing, just going, there's a huge difference bet between me as a 47-year-old and my two teens. Can you picture being 75 and raising two teenagers? Adoption, foster parenting, blended families, extended families, spiritual parents. We are all spiritual parents. I mean, the number of kids who uh, come through my house, the number of times we volunteer in church doing different things, we're all being influential to students around. And I would say the world has changed from when you and I were kids. This is grades 1 through grade 12. This isn't just random things. On top are when my own family dealt with things. 
Uh, you know, just music and dating began for my kids' friends in grade five, and drugs were found in their school in grade six. And on the bottom are some of my best friend's kids, kids with anxiety disorders and eating disorders, depression, suicide, in elementary school, early years. We haven't even hit grade seven. Grade seven, we hit peer pressure, self-esteem issue, alcohol use, phone addiction, and peer attachment, and then we hit high school. And that's the interesting thing. Then we hit high school. Uh, I have a new phenomenon, which is not youth pastors calling me and asking me to speak. It's children's pastors. And they're like, can you come speak to our children? And I'm like, if you consider children like junior high through young adult, yes, I'm in. But like, I don't have talks designed for students in grade two, three, four, but we need to have these conversations with them. And then we had high school, alcohol and drug use and abuse, the depressed girl and the adrift boy. Now those are heavy generalizations, but I do think they're true. Uh, Busyness, the desperation for peer acceptance and just extreme stress. Are you prepared as a parent? Am I prepared as a parent? Are we prepared, uh, you know, to actually help our kids cope and deal with all these situations? Quite often I hear from teenagers that they're learning how to deal with these things on their own, and we need to look at how to get involved as parents. Now, for every parent, we must protect our child's innocence as long as is necessary, but we must be ready, ready to let the innocence melt away at the appropriate time so that purity can take over and rule the soul. Now, the goal is actually in life is not um, it's not this idea of innocence, it's actually the idea of purity. Purity is the, you know, taking, you know the verse, where, you know what talks about being in the world and not of the world? That's what we all have to learn. And there comes a time in every kid's life when they're ready to take more weight of personal, more responsibility upon their own shoulders. Uh, if we don't do that, do you see what's act- actually on there, the bumpers? Remember really, really young kids with bumpers? And you, they'd bowl and would go like bump, 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 and then every time it would hit something? If you have an 18-year-old and there's bumpers in life like that, we're actually in trouble. Frederick Douglass once said, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men, and I would add in, and women. My favorite age to speak to, junior hires. Any day, give me a junior hire, and I say the word sex, and the boys laugh uncontrollably. Give me that any day from the broken high school student. The I wish I didn't is what I get in every high school I've ever been to in the last two decades. Now tonight, from a parent's standpoint, there's no magic pill. Uh, There's no one thing I will say tonight that will fix situations. There's three kind of main things I think we find ourselves in. One is in the conversation of prevention. I think we should always be working to prevent issues. As opposed to being reactive, right? Reacting to what's happening, we should be trying to figure out how could we never be in that situation in the first place. Number two is maintenance and management. If you're doing prevention things, then we're doing maintenance and management. And for some people, there's crisis. And crisis is all hands on deck, right? It's family and friends and pastors and leaders and counselors. And right, we, we, we kind of surround each other and walk through different crises. There is this kind of current parenting state we see. Uh, this is kind of on one side, you know, what we need and one side what we see. So if you look on the right side, it says children are being served with digitally distracted parents, indulgent parents who let kids rule the world, a sense of entitlement rather than responsibility, inadequate sleep and unbalanced nutrition, a sedentary indoor lifestyle, endless stimulation, technological babysitters, instant gratification, and an absence of dull. The idea of even play, we're not having to say to people, you should play outside. It's such a weird thing that we're having to actually tell people to do that. Now, I'm going to challenge you to read four books. This is book number one. I will tell you if they're a faith-based person or not. This one is not. Uh, Leonard Sachs wrote a book called The Collapse of Parenting. Uh, It actually reads this way. Uh, Many college faculty and staff report a noticeable fragility amongst today's students. Some describe them as teacups, beautiful but liable to break with the slightest drop. 
We've, we've also called students today the House of Cards, not the Netflix TV series, but like if one card falls, they all fall down. Uh, if you listen to talk radio, we often call millennials snowflakes, and I find it funny we bash millennials a lot, and I actually think you're not actually bashing millennials. Millennials are now mid-20s married with children people. Uh, I don't know why we bash an entire generation as well, but some of the things we're concerned about is actually the upper regions of uh, Generation Z, who is now like graduating college university. So for most of my career, I've spoken on topical things, and I still do, like I did this morning. But what I want to do today, talking about parenting, is to talk about foundations of parenting. So I read, uh, I think it was 75 to 100 books, and I talked to a lot of people, and I looked at the people who in this sphere, like parenting, are the leaders, and I kind of thought there's four main things that I like. One is, what is parenting? One is time, one is communication, and one is discipline. Now at the bottom, I put Christian faith. And I believe true Christian faith touches all aspects of our lives. Uh, but I think those are four, and four important things. Now, this is not like the four pillars of parenting. And if you don't do these four pillars, like you can change them. You can move them around, put different words in. But let's just walk through this. So what is parenting? A large, I'm talking like 10,000 plus parents were polled asking, what is the goal of parenting? 46% said they believe their goal in parenting is to have children and a family. Let that sink in just for one second. of parents believe their goal is just to physically have a kid. So the moment you walk out of a hospital, it's done. And that's a problem. 30% want to be a good parent, but what does that mean? 7% want to adopt, and now I'm like, I don't know if people are understanding the question. 3% have concrete image of how they'll play with their kids. 1% want to raise kids to become good people, and 12% were irrelevant answers. I want to teach my kid how to shoot baskets. I want to teach my kid how, and it's just like, One person said, not one, so there was a percent of this, of people who said, I want to have a child so that I can stop drinking. Like, these aren't reasons that we want to have children. Not everyone realizes that the task of parenting is hard because there's no clear goal in the whole parenting process. Uh, I assume most of you, when we had kids, when we were like baby stage, we bought the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. We all have that. And then after that, there is nothing. (laughs) It's just kind of like, figure it out on your own. Let's see how it works. So I thought, well, what is the goal of parenting? So I posted on my social media, uh, just what is the goal? Uh, What one mom said was the goal of Christian parenting is to raise godly children. And I would say, I don't disagree with that, but I would just say that our Christian parenting has to be bigger than more than just you meet Jesus. It's you meet Jesus and Jesus changes everything in you from the inside out. Because we have a lot of, you know, kids who know God in youth group and around our churches who are disasters in every aspect of life. So our Christian faith should be touching everything. Uh, Number two comes from a book called Trophy Child. Our job as parents is to raise children who love Jesus and leave home as responsible adults. How about end stop right there? I actually really like that. He goes on to say, we prepared them for a lifetime of following Christ, working hard, being married, and raising a family. Most parents wrote me to raise happy kids, and I would say, I disagree. What does happy mean? And if you're not happy, are you not a good parent? Like, happy is such this crazy word that we use in life. Uh, The one that I found, and this is the second book I would challenge you to read, called Trophy Child. Ted Cunningham is a pastor down in the United States. He says, they will not be with me forever, so I will prepare them accordingly. There is weight to that quote. It's one of those quotes that I read and stopped just for a while because there is weight. Your kids will not be with you forever, so you better prepare them accordingly for life. And that's what I don't think we're doing today. Now, as Christians, the first place we kind of look for, you know, things and how to do life would be the Scripture. Now, there's one interesting thing about the term parenting. 
Uh, George Barna, who does research for a living, says if you've sought spiritual guidance in parenting, you might have been surprised to discover how little instruction God gives us in this regard. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't give us principles to live by. The Bible's filled with who we are to be as people. The term parenting, by the way, didn't exist in Scripture. Parenting as a verb is about 100 years old. No different than the word teenagers, which is only 70 years old. There are new things and new kind of adolescence and stages. Like when you were in biblical times, you were a kid and very quickly you were married at 12 and a half to 14 and you were an adult. The Bible talks about who you are to be and if you become the person the Bible says you are to be, I think you will be a good parent. And there are some verses which we can talk about about children. Uh, Deuteronomy, teach them to your children. Now the actual language is not as simple as teach. It's actually the word inscribe, which means like to carve. It's a, bit, a little bit harsher. Uh, Train up a child in the way you should go. We'll deal with that one in discipline. Children, do what your parents tell you. Honor your father and your mother. uh, And and honor, sorry, whoever spares the rod will deal with in discipline. The one, train up a child in the way you should go, is a fascinating one. Uh, Almost every parenting thing that I read talked about that. But here's the problem with that. That's not a promise. That's a proverb. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are wisdom. They're adages. If you do that, if we train up a child in the way you should go, most likely they will not depart from it. But here's the problem with this verse when we call it a promise. There are amazing parents in our churches whose kids go off a little bit. And then they feel incredible guilt and incredible shame because we then therefore go, we'll train up a child in the way you should go. I guess you did something wrong. And then there are nightmare parents who have phenomenal kids. So I, t- I taught in inner city Toronto, in Scarborough. Uh, many of my kids' family and them were gang members. Uh, one of my uh, girls that I taught, she had a 99% average and her parents were both high-level gang members. So I said to her one day, how? She said, what? I'm like, how on earth are you getting a 99% in my class? And she said, I've just chosen not to follow my parents. She said, I go home at night, I push guns and drugs off the kitchen table, open up your science textbook, and I do my work. So I just say that train up a child in the way it should go is, is the goal. It's the ideal, but it's not an idol, right? It's not a perfect thing. Now, parenting stages, if you've ever studied this in school, if you've ever taken a psychology class, uh, the top ones are called Galinsky's parenting stages. I have no idea what these are. Like interpretive, is that dance? I don't know. Um, I just find them like convoluted and complicated. I like the ones below. Zero to six are the discipline years. Seven to 12 are the training years. The teen years, they call the teen years, and I actually call the teen years the coaching years. And then young adults, I actually believe, are called the friendship years. Now, do not get hung up on words. We discipline throughout. You train throughout. You're a coach throughout, and you're also a friend throughout. Now, if you're uh, someone who researches parenting, parenting styles is what we talk about over and over and over these days. I would challenge you to read uh, and and follow online Alison Schaefer, if you don't know that name, S-H-A-F-E-R. Alison is with a Y, A-L-Y-S-O-N. If you find her on Facebook or on her website, she does these uh, weekly Facebook live videos. You can write and ask questions. She would be what I would call a parenting expert, follow everything she says. It's just awesome. Tim Elmore wrote a blog. He says, from this decade, it was the 90s, adults began to believe our world was less safe than ever and kids needed oversight or direction at all times. And it caused, we call this paranoid parenting styles. And these things created four things. And I wonder if you would agree with me that these things are true. One, kids began feeling entitled to special perks because we said that they're special. Two, kids began to feel unsafe, afraid, and even paranoid because of their parents' behavior. Three, kids began believing that they were fragile and could not handle adversity. Four, kids began embracing the narrative that their world is full of evil people who could harm them. 
I believe we're here today. If you talk to any educator, if you talk to anyone working with colleges and universities, this is kind of where we sit today as a culture. Now, parenting styles, there is a lot of them. I do have a YouTube video on this. It's, I think I do 49 of them. I want to go over just a handful of them. Now, the blue ones are the big ones. The stars are things you should be doing. Attachment parenting you should be doing. Now, this is not what you probably think of, which, which, which is like, you know, breastfeeding for a longer period of time and co-sleeping. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about attaching to you as a parent, only then your kids go and attach to their peers. The problem today is what we call peer attachment where students are attaching to each other without having that kind of rock in the middle, which is their parents. Uh, today, most students will ditch, so I'll give you an example of my house. We were having 10 people over for a party, my son. Five of those people dumped our party within minutes before they should have arrived because there was another party they thought was better. I said, don't worry, because within five minutes, five of the people going to the other party ditched that party thinking our party was, like, everyone will ditch everyone at any moment just to get a little bit higher on this popularity scale. This stops around grade, end of grade 10, early grade 11. It stops earlier for girls, and it starts, stops later for boys. Helicopter parenting, we hover and then swoop in. Bulldozer, rescue, lawnmower, they're all the same. One great example is uh, a mom who was in New York City, think of the throngs of people, and she was pushing people out of the way, uh, and the son was like behind on their phone. Like, that's, just let your kid run into someone, and then they would actually never do that again. We are looking at enacting what we call zombie laws in large metropolis cities, where you will, it's not like dead people, zombies. It's zombies like you're a zombie on your phone, and if you are on your phone and you are walking, you will get a ticket, and they say to you, just move to the side. Return on investment parents are parents who want something back from their investments they made, usually sports. Tiger parenting is where, it's just control. Tiger parenting, lots of control. Jellyfish, less control. Christian spiritual parenting, I want my kids to love Jesus. Of course I do. But that's not the only thing. We have to also teach our kids other things. Gut check parenting means you only uh, get upset at a supermarket if someone comes into your aisle with their cart, then you might discipline your kid. A Disney dad is what it's most often. It's sometimes Disney moms, and we often see this in divorced families. We're also now seeing it in married households where the dad is fun dad. So if it's a divorced family, kids go one place on a weekend. It's do whatever you want, stay up late, bad music, it doesn't matter, eat whatever you want. Back to mom on Monday, through homework, dishes, dinner, life, that kind of stuff. Gifted parenting is not what you might think. It's not really smart kids. It's parents who make excuses for kids. I'm sorry my kid punched you in the face. They have low blood sugar today. Like, that's, not, that's an excuse, right? That, that's, there's not a reason for that. Companion parenting, single and widowed, we can understand that. Overparenting and fear-based parenting is the core of everything today. We'll come back to that one in a minute. Adlerin parenting, I think, is phenomenal. And this is what Alison Schaefer would subscribe to. Alfred Adler was a, a physician and psychologist, and I would encourage you to Google his principles. They believe heavily that people need to feel like they're, they're, that they're significant and that they belong. And from that, there will actually be good things. Uh, affectionless parenting, I just say, especially to the men in the room, the number of teenage girls who write me and tell me their dads have never told them they love them once is staggering. So I always just say this, if you want to text your kids, uh, you're welcome to, you're only allowed three words, I love you, send. By their response, you will know if you do it enough. I had one man right in the front row and he texted and then he texted again and texted again, he was smiling and then he got the first text and the whole demeanor changed and then two more texts and he got up and left. All three of his teen daughters and his wife all wrote him and said, are you dying? Are you okay? What's happening? He said, Mike, do they not know that I love them? Like, it's interesting. There's a disconnect, though. Only child parenting, sibling raised, jaded parents. Anyone realize that we're just angry all the time? 
Like, go on the news, right? It's, whether it's, it's governments and what people are doing, and we, you know, like, we're always angry. And what do we do when we're always angry and our kids are always around us? We become jaded. And I mean, I have dozens of other ones. Anyone confused? Like, what, what are you supposed to do here? Now, it's actually not as complicated as you might think. There are only four types of parenting styles. These are the four. That's it. Everyone that I just listed can be put on a continuum here. Uh, Support and warmth on one axis, control and demand on the other. So you are to be the blue one in the top right. Authoritative parenting. Like things with logical consequences, you love them and you ask a lot of them. My wife's a nurse. If I'm going speaking at night and my wife's coming home, I'll say to my kids, uh, do you need anything tonight? You know, whatever. Can you do the dishes and you know, make sure your laundry is put away before mom gets home? I demand a lot. I expect my kids will do well in school and do things, but I also love them to death and I build into the relationship ongoing. Authoritarian is you do it because I'm your dad. That's different, right? You're not giving any support and warmth. You're just demanding things. And then we have people who ask nothing but they love or they don't love or don't ask anything, and that's just the uninvolved parent. There are tons of studies. They all say the same thing. Authoritative parenting is what you're to be. But authoritative parenting requires authority, and we'll get back to that one later. Uh, I would challenge you to not over-parent. We do life with our kids. Over-parenting does life for our kids. I actually break it out. Do life for our kids. Then we do life with our kids. Why? So that you can let our kids do life. Overfunctioning, back to the, a quote from Tim Elmore, says, Overfunctioning in parenting simply means doing too much for our children, intervening and removing any common struggles they may experience in their day. When we insulate our kids and remove consequences from actions, we fail to prepare students for the life that awaits them when they graduate. I don't know if you have these in Sudbury, but where I live, we now have soccer leagues that don't keep score. You know keep score? Everybody especially the parents, <laughs> like, but everyone knows the score. We're so worried that someone might win or lose. When my son played his first, uh, was it hockey? He was, I guess, four or five years of age. Uh, he got a participation trophy. It was this big. My participation trophies were this big or nothing at all. Like, it's just incredible how we just don't want people to feel bad. There are winners and losers in certain, in certain things. It's okay to know that. In the book, How to Raise an Adult, and I would challenge you to Google uh, Julie Lithcott-Hames. She has a TED Talk, which is absolutely unbelievable. Here's what she says. Why did parenting change from preparing our kids for life to protecting them from life, which means they're not prepared to live life on their own? She was a college admissions person, and she talks about how young adults were not quite fully formed humans. It's an interesting line. I've talked to a number of my friends as I've done this talk, people who've worked at different colleges, universities, and one of them said to me, we're now having to create courses for men especially who come to colleges and universities because they don't know what to do. You know what these courses have to tell people to do? Shower. Because their moms always told them to shower. How to go and cook and make groceries for the second year because if they're in the first year, they might be in residence. Like basic skills that their mom or dad have always done. They don't even know how to do. So you might be asking, well, what is overparenting? Like, am I an overparent? Well, let's go through a few things. You might be an overparent if you. If you escort your kids onto the bus daily and you sit them down. This actually happens right outside my house. I watch a mom take her kindergarten kid onto the school bus with kids and then fight the stream of kids getting on the bus to get off of the bus. You might be an overparent if you drive your kids to school every day and then walk them to the door of their classroom. 
So as a teacher, I was part of the generation that instituted kiss and rides. You know kiss and rides? We put up pylons, you drive in. Uh, we were kind of voluntold, but we're there to welcome your kids. We open the door, we're like, hi. Your kids get out, we're like, bye. And we shut the door and you have one, you can only go in one place and you leave. The goal was this, because we had parents in, in our school, we had parents fist fighting, parents fist fighting before, like we were actually having to have people out to figure out what to do with the parents. So I'm a teacher, I'm teaching grade eight, and I have a mom who comes, she walks to school with her kid, here's the issue, and then she hangs out with her kid in, in outside, hangs out with her grade eight kid, comes up the stairs, you know, the kids all line up, she hangs up in the line, walks upstairs. Once I heard her say to her kid, it's really warm inside, you should take off your coat. He's in grade eight. This isn't kindergarten. Even kindergartens can take off their own coat. So uh, she came to me uh, really upset. She said, my son's being bullied. Do you know why? And I said, yes. I said, do you really want to know this answer? She said, yes. I said, okay, it's because of you. And she was not happy. I'm like, you're the only parent who walks in the school with their kid. And your kid will be made fun of because of what you do. Uh, If you go on a job interview with your child, you're overparenting. We laugh. Do we know the statistics? One in seven. One in seven 20 year olds today go for a job interview with their mother, dad, or, or, or mother or father. Now, we do have an issue with men in their 20s. And if there's some men in their 20s today, I'm, one in four 20 year old men don't work anymore. We're, we're talking staggering changes in society. One in seven men overall don't work. This is not men looking for work. This is people who just don't work. I have five in my circle of life of friends, people who just don't ever work. It's hobby time all their lives. Uh, This is a true story. A father in Chicago who calls his daughter at UCLA, University in in, uh, California, to wake her up and tell her what she has to do for the day. I don't do that with my own kids, and they're in high school. You might be an overparent if you always make your kids lunch. And parents, I have hate mail for this. And I just say, when can a kid make their own lunch? And I would say, as soon as they can. There aren't many things you can bring for lunch anyways. Put it on the table. Have them push it into a bag, put a zipper on it, and leave. And never again could they ever say to you something like, well, I didn't like my lunch. But it's easy to give up these small things to your kids. How about you call your kids' teachers to argue marks? Over-parenting, which I really think is fear-based parenting, is the question of what if... How many times do we just have to say, there are natural consequences? My son went to school the other day with a t-shirt on. He said, Dad, it was 16 yesterday. I said, did you check the weather app? He goes, no. I'm like, he said, I'll be fine. I'm like, okay. So he left. It was minus one. And he came home and he kind of looked at me and he goes, it was really cold today. I'm like, yeah. Like, but like, he'll learn, right? He learned that. It's not going to kill him. And the same goes with many other things, right? My son once forgot his lunch and he... uh, now, he, he's, he, he actually had some money and he bought lunch and he was quite happy with that. But the truth is, he learns, that, right? There's consequences for our actions. Enrichment is all around us, though. Danger is not. There are ages that kids can and should do things for themselves. But here's this interesting rhythm. We speed up things when kids are young. So I went last summer and then recently to see the Avengers movies. What I was blown away at were the number of four, five, and six-year-old, not grade, four, five, and six-year-old boys and girls in the theater. This isn't a Disney Pixar movie. This is a massively violent comic book action. Like, it is one of the biggest things I've seen in my life. I'm there with my 15-year-old son. Anybody remember the movie Up? Remember that from many years ago? Uh, I went probably 15 years ago. My kids were really, really young. Uh, 
if you remember the movie, the very beginning scenes, I'm there with my daughter, their kindergarten, and my daughter turns to me with tears in her face, and she said, did the mommy just die? If you remember the movie, the beginning, and I'm not spoiling a movie from 15 years old, I assume, but the mom dies in the middle, and that's why the grandfather was in the house, and the house with the balloons, and it went away, but death is a big deal, and these movies are filled with death, music that kids shouldn't have. Don't ever have the news on with kids in the house. It's not good news, it's bad news, right? Everything is the bad news that goes on. So we, we speed up kids early in life, and then they get older, then we put the, put the brakes on. You know the new phenomenon we have? Teenagers don't get their licenses anymore. It used to be, stats were 95% of people would, like the day you turned 16, you would get your, for my generation, 365. My daughter, the day after, she was a Sunday, the day after she got her, called a G1, she took driver's ed. Eight months later, she got her license. She's one of two kids at her high school in grade 11. She's at a high school of 1,700 people. Two of them have their license in her grade. Two. They're now talking about statistics of, it's not about like moving out and doing different things, just basic things like getting a job or even getting your license. There are times that you should be able to do things for your life. Talking to strangers, finding your way around campuses, contributing to the running of a household. These are basic things we should be, be able to do. Remembering the goal is to launch our kids. You don't start launching kids in grade 11. You start launching in kindergarten as we slowly pass little age-appropriate things onto our kids. And as they get older, they take on more weight of that, more responsibility for their own lives. I have friends in university who've never worked a day in their life, whose moms still make their lunch for them. And they're struggling dating right now because every girl they've dated, they actually have been told they're looking for a mother, not looking for a girlfriend. Interesting. Side note, allowance should never be based on chores. I just think these are separate conversations. Allowance is very important, but we don't give money for doing, like doing chores is not heroic. Doing chores you do because you ate food, you made clothes dirty, and you live in a room, right? We all participate in those things. Uh, I I do think too the same thing would be with education. We don't give money for A's and B's. Uh, You can celebrate A's and B's, but you do well in school because you want kids to do well in school. One of my daughter's friends, the father pays money for dishes. And so one day the father and son let it pile up, pile up, pile up. And then he said like five bucks for the dishes. And she said, it's not worth it. And she left. And I'm like, good for her. Because it wasn't just, we're a family, let's all do the dishes. As we end this uh, first section, I do believe in the coaching analogy. Now I've coached rep baseball most of my life. This is my first year I'm not doing baseball. My son uh, will spend uh, seven weeks this summer up at a camp in Huntsville called Minioe doing their leadership training program. Uh, but the coach analogy is how we need to view life. So as a coach, my son was our starting pitcher and I would train him the best I could, but at any game he was pitching, he would walk out to the mound and there's nothing else that I can do. I am done. I am sitting on a bench and I'm cheering him on, but he does everything. It's the same when our kids go to school, go to youth group, go to work if they're older, do whatever else, right? We have to just take this analogy that we are the coach. Now, if you're taking photos, I have a summary for each of these because I know there's a lot in this. So the first summary is just that these are the four main things in parenting styles. Uh, The authoritative parenting, no over-parenting, and I can't, excuse me, stress that one enough. Doing life with, not for our kids, and then the idea of coaching. And I have five books for you. The star are people who are Christians. Uh, I shouldn't actually say it that way. Trophy Child is written as a faith-based book. Hold on to your kids. Gary Newfeld, I'm sure, is a Christian. I think Julie is. Karen Gordon is, I'm sure, I I know as well. She's a friend of mine. But their books are not written as faith-based books. 
Uh, Dr. Karen's Guide to Teen Years, I read when my kids were eight and seven. It was life-changing in my family. So don't see the word teen years and think I have young kids. And the last one is called free-range kids. Think of like free-range chickens. There's not a week that goes by when you don't hear like, you know, children's aid was called. A grade six boy walked home from school on his own today. And you just kind of shake your head and go, what have we come to as a society when kids can't go to a park or play anymore? Section two, I think the greatest gift you can give your kids is actually time. Now, I actually think you could argue failure. Failure might be the greatest gift. And I'm at a talk the other week and someone shouted out, no, Jesus, Jesus is the greatest gift. And I'm like, yes, yes, of course. But we're talking about parenting. Like, it's sometimes, you ever heard the quote, we're so spiritually minded, we're no earthly good? By the way, I hate that quote. We're to be spiritually minded. That's a good thing, but we're talking about parenting here. So, of course, Jesus is the greatest gift. But in parenting, we're talking about the ideas of failure or time. Now, if you've never known this analogy, it's one of my favorite. It's called the marbles jar analogy. Here's what it means. I believe this comes from Psalm 90.12, which says, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Uh, So, basically, you are losing your marbles in more ways than one. The day you have a child, you have 936 marbles. Every week, if you take a marble out, the analogy is physically you could do this every week. It means around June of the graduation year, you will have no marbles left. Now, that is not perfect because people are born in different, like my daughter's a March baby, my son's a November baby. But the point is that you have roughly 936 weeks until they graduate grade 12, which means things like you look at the occasions and birthdays. I actually don't have that number anymore. My daughter and son are down to two and one. So if you're like Brett, we really enjoyed your talk. Would you come back next year at this time like, or on March 4th to, to speak at your church in Sudbury? And I would say, thank you so much, but no. Because March 4th is the last birthday I have with my daughter before. And my daughter is, I'm assuming she's going to go away to school. She's been looking at that. And a few of her counselors from camp have gone away. And so if I have one more birthday with her, I put a little boundary around that. This changes everything we do. When you realize you're losing your marbles, Like, I have a small jar of marbles with about 60, 70 marbles with my daughter left. That's not a lot. And all the different things that we can do. Now, every time I say this, um, the room gets quiet, and I watch people's shoulders drop, and I've watched people begin to cry. Especially parents of teenagers, we have this grieving as our kids get older. And I'm just going to challenge you, one, don't grieve something that hasn't even happened yet. And two, it's not the end. So, I have a video on YouTube about this. I call it a marbles jar with a twist. Here's the twist. So the marbles jar lasts through the three first stages, and when you turn roughly 18, roughly, some people will do a victory lap, but then at that point, we hit these young adult years. Here's my challenge to you. Whenever that happens, dump out whatever marbles are left, and I want you to start over. Anytime through these young adult years into their young married years and then having grandkids, anytime you do anything for your kids, your, their future spouse, your grandkids, put a marble back in the jar. Anytime you talk to them, take them out for dinner, go on vacation with them, anything you ever do. Even driving here yesterday, my mom called to say, I'm praying for you going up. There's a marble into the jar, right? Support and encourage. A parent is a parent is a parent is a parent. There's no age and stage that it switches. We do need to realize, though, that we are losing just not marbles, but time with our kids. If you look across just the top of that, when you have young kids, they're with you 12 hours a day. Some of you have young kids, you're like, I know that. Then you, they go to school and you have six hours a day. Then they become junior hires, it's four hours a day. And then with teenagers, two hours, if that. 
if that. Both my kids, my daughter's a lifeguard, my son works for a company called Dicom, they're like a pure later delivery company, like they work and then I work and then my wife, like it's, it's often, we don't have that kind of time. Time like in the morning, driving to and from things, mealtime and bedtime, except the stage of teenagers, because I mean, if you're tucking in a 15, 16 year old kid, you might be overparenting, right? Like you can say goodnight, but maybe not the tucking in com- component. Uh, there are, I don't even know how many, like I have at least 20 or 30 studies that talk about how simple this thing is. If you eat together as a family, more than three days a week, everything in the world changes in your house. So I would say, do anything in the world, I love the quote that says, a family meal is a potent collecting ritual. So eat together. Now, eating together is not just one thing. It's the cooking and the cleaning of food. It's presence. Have you ever, as an adult, been at a dinner, and at the end of dinner, you're part of stuff, you're smiling, but you realize you haven't spoken the whole time? You're living in your head. For me, I'm writing a book, or I have a thought, or an idea, and I'm mulling over things, and I realize I haven't had any communication. Questions, when kids are younger, we always used to do, tell me something good that happened today, and tell me something bad that happened today, and we were all part of it, including my wife and I. And now that my kids are older, we have enough stuff to talk about. Being teens, it's an intense time, and then no technology. Uh, I'm talking no technology. TV is not on, you're around a table, all the phones are turned off, and I'm like turned off, not buzzing in your pockets, and I like to put them in stacks on a table or put them somewhere else. As your kids get older, when they're younger and you have kids home all the time, I don't think it's as much as an important thing, but when they hit junior high and especially high school, a family schedule is paramount. So every Sunday, we try to sit down, we have a blank just Google calendar we printed off, and we go, you know, like, okay, when are you working today, Ben? My son, and he'll be like, Monday, Wednesday. My daughter's Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, we have youth group on, on Thursday. We, we knock where church is going to be. We kind of do all these things, and I'm away traveling. Like, I, I left, what day? Today's Sunday, right? So I came up last night, but I spoke at a conference yesterday. So I haven't been home since Saturday morning, and I'll get home tomorrow at lunch. So we block all these things off. Now, we also add in some meal planning as well, which helps a lot to say we're going to have this on this day and this on another. But what we do is we've realized that if we're going to have time as a family, we've gone very quickly from having three, four, five family dinners a week to having one. Because if my kids have youth one night and they each work two opposite nights, that's five days out of the week already gone. So we actually every week go, when are we having our family night? And we book a single night. Now, the truth is with teens, we also just say, we're going to go for a meal. We're going to go to a dinner. We'll go to Montana's or something. And wherever, like, all I got to say to my, my teenage son is, you want ribs? And he's like, yeah. Like, it's like, he's there, right? He will join us for dinner. And family outings should be protected. This is the idea that uh, vacations and other things are meant not for your kids' friends. It's meant for bonding time with your family. Now, don't read this the wrong way. I'm not saying you can't go to the zoo or Science North in Sudbury. You can't go do whatever. You you do those things with friends, but you have a vacation time when you are alone with your kids to build into your family. And one of the last sections here is just celebrate milestones, hills, and valleys. Just means this. Big days are big deals. And there's a power in celebration. And we must take leadership for this. Transitions should be marked, milestones commemorated, and pits filled. Transitions, new home, changing jobs, milestones, birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, grade 8, grade 12, college, university. And the pits are breakups, death. When my daughter's friend tried to kill herself, that was a bad day. We went out for dinner. Did it solve anything? No. But we had dinner. And we hugged and we cried and we ate. And we were there. And it was just, that's the idea of family, that you're together. 
Main thoughts in this chapter of time, marbles. Now, I, 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 I bought marbles. I bought 2,000 marbles off eBay, and I put them into different jars. You know, one for 936, one for like a grade five kid, and then one for me, literally with my daughter Zoe. Took off to draw, I was speaking in London, Ontario, and I got cut off on the 401 by a transport truck, and my marbles fell over. I didn't put lids on the jars. So 2,000 marbles rolled onto the floor, and I'm actually trying to drive, and there's marble, like picture the whole floor. I don't bring marbles anymore. They just sit at home. Marbles, meals, schedules, and milestones. You see, I didn't try to make a fourth M there. Like we're not making just things that rhyme nicely, but schedule and milestones. And I got two book suggestions. One new one, I didn't even quote it here, is called The Grown-Up's Guide to Teenage Humans. What a great name. Uh, Josh Shipp is one of the most well-known people who talks about the marbles analogy and the book, The Power of Moments. So now we've talked about parenting styles. We've looked at time, and now we head into the idea of communication. So now we're doing these things. Now we need to make sure that we communicate to our kids many things, that we love them more than just for how they're doing with their grades or if they're following our rules. In the book, The Price of Privilege, Uh, 15-year-old Kyle said, it's so odd that I feel my mom is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Being everywhere is about intrusion. Being nowhere is about a lack of connection. So many times in our relationships, uh, we have a fractured communication, a fractured relationship. Gary Chapman, in his book, When Sorry Isn't Enough, what a great book, by the way, says, and this is kind of the three things. This could be like first, second, and third. First would just be to say, I'm sorry. Uh, With my mental health struggles, if you weren't here this morning, I struggle with a pretty severe mental health uh, struggle in my life. I deal with panic attacks, anxiety, uh, you name it. And so there are days I have bad sleeps and I wake up in the morning exhausted. And there are days I say things and I'm a little rough in my language maybe. Like just, I just get angry quicker or something. And I have to go to my kids and say, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. My daughter will always be like, it's okay. And it's like, it's not okay. Like I'm, I'm, it's great you're saying that, but if I didn't come and do this, it wouldn't be okay. Number two, maybe you need more than that. Maybe you need some time and some communication. Maybe you have to spend time together. Now, my son and I have never, ever struggled with time. I've coached every sport he's ever done. We've had more talks driving around this country, uh, you know, in, eating wings after games. And, like, we always got time together. My daughter was a dancer and a gymnast sorry, and an artist. I was threatened to coach her dancing. But the truth is, we struggled because we, we differ. Like, she's not a sports girl, and I am. And so we have to work at time together. So we have a few TV series on Netflix that we watch, only us. We will only watch it when we're together. And anytime my daughter ever says, hey, can you or will you, my answer is yes. Like, those are things. Like, do you want to go to the gym? Yes, I do. Like, there's just things that we do together. We actually, by the way, joined a health club as a family with teenagers, one of the best things we ever did. Because it, it, it kills all these different things with, you know, different birds with one stone, like family time, together time, health, all these things together. But are we actually listening to our kids? When I speak and travel in youth groups, the number of teens who tell me I've told my parents but they didn't do anything is incredible. I'm at a church just like this on a Sunday morning a number of months ago. And after I finished, uh, they had, you know, the steps at the front. So I just uh, sat down on one and a girl came up to talk and she uh, burst into tears and talked about how she told her father she's struggling with anxiety and she doesn't know what to do and she's just at her wit's end and and just can't handle it. At that moment, the lead pastor walked up and he says, hey, Brett, enjoyed your sermon. Uh, And he said, oh, so sorry, you met my daughter, I see. 
and I had a chance to have a really good conversation with the two of them, but the reality is, is too often, I think we're trying to be, do you remember the band R.E.M. from many years ago? They have a song called Shiny Happy People. We're trying to be that. We're Christians. We know Jesus. Everything's good. We're as broken as the next person. People walk into our churches and think everyone's marriages are fine and our kids are the best in the world. And every, like, they need to know that we're struggling with things. It's okay. And I even say with these things, uh, our kids need to realize that they are allowed to fail in life. So in our house, uh, I've been very blunt with my kids. When my daughter hit grade nine, I pulled her aside and said, I just want to tell you something. She said, okay. And I said, if you ever get pregnant, she's like, dad, I'm like, listen to me. If you ever do get pregnant, you can come and talk to me. No park bench, no clinic on your own. Come and see me. I said, it will, it will break my heart, but I will love you forever and always. And we can deal with these things. And my daughter cried and then gave me a hug. I've said to both my kids, if, like, I have expectations that they're not getting drunk and high at parties, but I just said, if you ever make a mistake, you can call me and I will pick you up any place, anywhere, anytime, and I will be happy you called me and I will not yell at you when you get in the car. Do you have a safe word in your family for, for your kids? Mine is, my ears hurt. If my daughter calls me and she says, hey, dad, my ears hurt a bit. I am leaving what I'm doing and driving beyond the speed limit. It means, dad, I'm babysitting. The husband came home drunk and I feel really scared. Will you come and get me? Dad, I'm at a party right now and I need to be out of here. If it's a party, we have a system set in place. I call her back. I tear into her on the phone that she's going to come home now and better be home in five minutes. It's all fake. My daughter then plays that for her friends as, oh, my dad's really mad, I gotta go. She leaves. She saves face with her friends. I don't care about her friends. And my daughter comes home. We need to have conversations that we love each other forever and always, no matter what. I think it's important uh, when we look at the idea of communication, how family dinners and how you drive and family events, it's not just doing them. It's also the communication in them. And never forget you're always being watched. I did uh, a talk last year. Uh, there's one church that does a Sunday once a year called Porn Sunday. Uh, it sounds awkward. It's actually, they're going to address pornography once a year in every age and stage in the church. They address it all the way down in children's ministry, appropriately, but all the way through. I think it's the most proactive thing in the world. And then I was brought in to do my talk on pornography. So I finished and I'm uh, heading home and I was out for lunch somewhere and I got an email and I looked down and uh, a young teenager said to me, hey, Brad, if I ever struggle with pornography, can I, can I call you? Can I talk to you? And I said, like, why wouldn't you talk to your dad? Like, I know your dad. He said, well, my dad got in the car and it was me and he has two brothers and sisters, all teens. And he said, my dad got in the car and said, what kind of stupid person gets addicted to pornography? And this young guy wrote me and said, my dad told me in that moment that there was nothing you could ever tell me, ever, for my entire life. If a young girl gets pregnant in your church, what is your response? You know what was in my church growing up? We paraded the young girl to the front and made her apologize to us as a congregation. I call that religious abuse. Where's the grace? Where's the mercy? And I just think how you respond when you hear things, your kids will be listening always. And although we love our kids, do we really know how to make them feel loved? Uh, I'm assuming some of you have read a book once called The Five Love Languages. Quick show of hands, how many of you have read it? If you haven't, please get it. They have two other versions. One is for children, one is for teenagers. So I get married, and a few weeks into my marriage, we've been dating for six months, uh, married now for a few, and my wife says to me, you know that I love cards? I said, cards are stupid. She said, did you know that I love cards? And she gave me the Five Love Languages book. 
And I read it and I realized my wife loves words of affirmation, words. Words mean nothing to me. Not that they were abused in my life, but if you tell me you love me, I'd say, prove it. Like, I'm an actions guy, so I'm doing acts of service for my wife, and she's wanting words of affirmation. So I bought her a card, <clears throat> and uh, we're lying in bed on Valentine's Day, and she said, thanks for the card, and I'm like, you're welcome. She said, did you read it? <laughs> so I can't break eye contact, right? Like, and in my head, I'm like, shoppers, drug mart, cards. I'm like, yes. She holds it up, and in big letters, it says, to my husband on the front of it. 22 years later, that still lives in her nightstand. And every once in a while, it finds its way out. The truth is this. I think we need to learn how to love each other as spouses, loving our kids, and even our friends. I think this is so, so important. And one thing I think is amazing for communication, the best thing in, that we've done in my life is the idea of a family meeting. And I have a full video on this. Every August, we sit down and we walk through everything that we are going to do. It's our Almond Family General Meeting. We talk about, uh, you know, how our faith is going to be paramount and what that means. We talk about if we're going to go on a vacation, where we're going to go, activities, you know, work, chores, what we're going to do, meals for my kids, where they're going to go, go to camp, what they're going to do for their birthday party. I'm not going to argue Halloween, but uh, I like Halloween. I, it is, I'm an evangelist at heart. I go around every Halloween with a Google Maps printed piece of paper of my neighborhood. And every time I meet someone, I'm like, hi, what's your name? Shake your hand. Oh, and your husband's name? And, they, and you know, it's Bill and whatever. And I, I, as I'm leaving, I have a pen and I write it on their house so that when I walk my community, I can pray for you and I know who you are. But my wife just didn't want to find out you want this crazy Halloween costume like one hour before you go out. This has been life-changing for us, life-changing, where we talk as a family, we agree on what we're going to do, we just find things like behavior and everything we have not had to deal massively with because we keep addressing these things. Communication then, listening, driving, love languages, and then the ideas of a family meeting. Now, some of the books you're seeing are repeating because these aren't like perfect pillars of things, but I added in When Sorry Isn't Enough and The Two Love Languages by Gary Chapman. So we go through and end off at the last main section, which is the section on discipline. Now, Ron Morish, if any of you are educators, Ron travels the school boards throughout this country. He is one of the best guys on discipline. He says this line, discipline is about teaching children to behave properly, not punishing them for behaving badly. Now, I actually questioned leaving nothing but that quote for this entire section on discipline because I think it is so foundationally different than how we discipline kids. Discipline is about teaching children to behave properly. It's just not how do we punish our kids. So I just thought for a few things, uh, here's some thoughts on discipline. Uh, one, stop the excuses. No gifted parenting. None of our kids are perfect. There's always things that can be corrected. Number two, abuse is never okay. Verbally, physically, emotionally, religiously, either way, from a parent to a kid, a kid to a parent, it's not okay to even disrespect each other. And I think creating structures are really important. Uh, if you have a crazy dinner time and you're disciplining all the time, do you have dinner time structures? Like in our house, it was come and get your, you know, colorful glass and milk or water and then, you know, at the end of the dinner, put your dishes into the sink and if it's bedtime routines, it was always, once you get out of the bath, it was first person with stories back in the king-size bed gets the first story and like minutes, they quickly come and store, like, but structure, structure, structure. So, some thoughts. First, if you want to discipline, you need a relationship for influence. You need to actually have the influence in you. So, going back to this chart, if you... We looked at the top before. So this is positional influence, and it goes down. 
This is like zero age, kindergarten, all the way through high school. Relational influence begins at nothing, and it goes up. This is what you want, where it says freedom over there. So it's New Year's Eve this year. My daughter going to one party, my son going to another party, and my wife and I going to a third party. So it's one of these weird nights. We're all going to be out. So I uh, said to my kids, hey, I need five minutes of your time. Will you sit down? My two teenagers sat down. And I just walked through my expectations of what we live in our family and what, like, you know, I don't have, like, I have an expectation you're not getting drunk and high tonight. I have an expectation of how you're going to act at parties. And I'm always uh, leery of my daughter being a girl. There is the off chance always that date rape drugs get dropped into someone's drink. So my daughter at every party takes a Starbucks cup with a lid on it. And so we, like, it's a... It's a far off chance, but I hear stories at least once a week. And so we're just, we just talk and we're open. And both my kids after gave me a hug and said thanks and it was done. But the only reason I can do that is because I've built into them with thousands of conversations and cars and couches, going on vacations and talking and having fun. Like if you, sometimes we try to take too much from something and we don't actually have enough influence with our kids. And our disappointments in discipline should be, should be directed at our child's behavior or their choices, never at their existence. There's a world of difference between behavior controls. Sorry you did so poorly on your math test. TV is off limits until you pull the grade up. Do you need some help? And psychological controls. You're going to be flipping burgers for the rest of your life if you continue to be such a goof-off. That's just offensive to someone flipping burgers, by the way. But your goal is to correct behavior, not to destroy your child. So A, we have a relationship for influence. B, clear, agreed on expectations and consequences. Father approaches me after this talk a few months ago, and he says, Brad, I was furious with my kid last week, and he got grounded, he broke his curfew. And I'm like, oh, when's his curfew? Oh, he doesn't have one. So how do you get grounded from his curfew? Well, he was later than he should have been. When should he have been in? And the father could never answer me. And I'm like, I couldn't stand being a kid in that house. Like, there are no clear degree on expectations. My friend Karen Gordon calls these wall boundaries. There's three types. Stone wall boundaries, rules are rigid with little flexibility. This is the authoritarian, right? Do what I say as a parent. <coughs> then there's the wild field boundary. That's the father that I just talked about. There's really no boundaries, but if you're late from whatever random boundary I choose, you're in trouble. What we're to be is picket fence boundaries. Rules are clear, flexible, and negotiated. So it was a couple years ago, uh, ending of the summer before grade nine, my son uh, had a curfew of 11 o'clock. It was his perfect August day. We let him stay out late. And at 10 after 11, he comes in the door. What is it that we get angry as adults? It's an arbitrary time I made, and I'm furious he's 10 minutes late. I went to yell at him, and before I could say a word, he's like, I know I'm late. Let me tell you why. Kind of like, mm. uh, And he says, so we... So it's funny, we made 11 o'clock, every other parent agreed to it. You ever notice when someone steps up and makes a time, everyone agrees to it? So at 10 to 11, they all dispersed. And as they were beginning to go home, uh, my son found himself with just him and one of his friends who's a girl, not a girlfriend, just one of his friends who's a girl. And she said, it's late, do you mind walking me home? She lived a little bit away. So my son said to me, he said, dad, I either broke your rule or I walked her home. And he said, I walked her home. And I almost cried. Because I almost yelled at him, and he made a really good choice. Because if he made it home, and I heard from that girl's parent, who's a friend of mine, that my son didn't walk her home that night, I probably would have been angry at him. He made a really, really good decision. Also with walls, we must realize uh, that it's the job of every kid to tear down their parents' walls and to build their own. 
This is really, really important. I want my kids to love Jesus because they love Jesus, not because I love Jesus. I want my kids to come home in good time because they want to have good sleeps, not because I think they should be home in good time. So here's what my wife and I have been doing. Since I've been doing this talk a year and a bit ago, we've been slowly taking our hands off our kids in certain ways, <clears throat> very structured. So my daughter and my son presently have no curfews. They don't know that, by the way, so please don't text them if you know them. So if my daughter says to me, uh, hey, on, on Friday night I'm going out, what's my curfew? We would say, what time do you want to be home? And she'll, she'd say, I don't know, is one okay? She could say anything, and we would say, okay. If she's going to be at Queen's or a university somewhere coming up, and she needs to understand what it's like to be home late, I would much rather her be learning right now when I'm there. So she came home at one, uh, the next morning uh, she got up and she's having breakfast, and she's like, oh, I'm really tired. I need to be home a bit earlier next week. And I'm like, that was too easy. Like, that, by the way, is not normally how things work in my house, but it worked. My son came in, and... uh, I was on my computer the other week, and he said to me, I want to buy a video game, and you're not going to like it. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and I said, what game? And he said, uh, Grand Theft Auto V. Now, if you know video games, it's a heavily misogynistic video game. Brilliant graphics, but heavily misogynistic. And I was about to say, like, not in my house. And then I'm like, that's not teaching. That's telling. So I'm like, how do I teach? So I thought, hands off. So I said to him, let me give you three minutes on why I think it's a bad video game. And then I said, you're in grade 10, I'm going to let you make the decision. This isn't a decision that I'm willing to live and die on. And if he made the decision to buy that game, which he didn't, by the way, but if he did, I would realize I need more teaching in my home about misogynistic video games and violence and different things like that. My wife, uh, we were just, uh, I'm working on a new book, and we put this in, and my wife asked my son, why didn't you buy the video game? And he said it wasn't worth ruining my relationship with dad for. Like, That's what I, like, I mean, honestly, like, that to me is so touching just to hear that from my own kid. Um, Back to influence, agreed on expectations. Now we go to punishments and training. You have to decide what you're all about. Are you here to give children the punishment and consequences they deserve for failure or the training and support or what they need for success? All good discipline has a purpose to it. So if your son comes home late and you ground them and take their phone away, have they learned about coming home in good time? Has there been any teaching around that? Like, have they, you, know, you could set an alarm on their phone. Like, No teenager at midnight is suddenly realizing they've got to be home. Is there systems in place to help them learn those things? And if you have younger kids, here's the biggest conversation we have, which is, is spanking. Now, I did a massive YouTube video for this. It's like 20 minutes long. But it's an interesting, uh, by the way, there are no studies that say spanking is good. Uh, In the last two months, uh, the largest organizations in the world have all said that spanking, even though it may stop something in the moment, no one thinks it does anything great for the future. And we as Christians often go back to Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son. What's interesting, though, is the discussion on that verse, because I, I was on one YouTube thing, and the preacher said, Bible says a rod, so I hit my kid with a rod, and I'm like, that's just horrible. Like, there was no grace. I heard people laughing in the background. I'm like, wouldn't you hate to be, like, do we actually look at what the rod means? Because the rod is used two types, two ways in Scripture. One is the rod, and one is a rod, not a rod like the baseball player, like a rod. One is used like the rod of discipline, which is this, the rod of discipline. One is a rod where you physically strike someone. It's always used negatively. Often it was like uh, (coughs) when Israel was under Egypt's rule, right, and people would beat people almost to death. It was the rod. Sorry, it was a rod. 
Now here's the problem. If you use the King James Version, it says um, his rod. It's the only time in the Bible in King James it uses another language. But here's the truth about Proverbs. Why are we handpicking one proverb? Because you don't use the other ones. Proverbs says if you have a quarrelsome wife, you should live on the edge of your roof. If you're a glutton, you should put a knife to your throat. We, don't, we, don't, like, we just need to be careful when we pick one verse. Because if you look through scriptures, grace and mercy and teaching is what is given. It's not this conversation. Now, if you want to go on my video, you can walk through a larger conversation on this. But here's the one biggest reason I think we shouldn't spank. Research says that whether a child gets a punitive spanking or not is hardly ever determined by the child's behavior. It's almost always determined by how the adult's day went. And that's why children don't get spankings at eight in the morning, they get them at eight at night. When an adult who is tired, frustrated, and exasperated starts to hit a kid, it shouldn't be about us. Teaching is about, uh, is, discipline is about teaching. I always just say teaching, not telling. Teaching, not telling. How are we teaching things? Influence, we need to have it. Picket fence boundaries and spanking. Like Discipline is an important conversation we need to have. And there are some really good book suggestions. I added in one grace-based discipline, uh, but there's a few others in there as well. Here's what I want to do for the rest of the night. I want to give you very quickly what I'm going to call on-ramps to every other talk that I have. Because I know people are always talking, well, how do I deal with pornography? Or how do I deal with mental health? Or different things. So I just want to give you some quick on-ramps. Then we'll look at a few of the questions. And if you want to talk to me later privately with questions, we'll go through that. So media. You cannot expect your kids to do anything that you're not doing. If you come home from work and turn the TV on for four hours, you can't get mad at your kid for doing the same thing. I had to laugh recently. A father came up to me recently. It was last summer. father came up to me and he said, um, I grounded my son. I'm like, why? He says, he played four hours of Fortnite last night. I said, oh, what did you do last night? He goes, well, I watched the Blue Jays game. I said, so did I. It was four hours long. It was a game that went to like 19 innings or some crazy amount. It's the same, both are entertainment, both are doing nothing, but sometimes we as adults don't value a video game, but we will value watching a movie or two or different things. But we model this, and what we did in my home is, is we, I, I stole this from Tony Campolo decades ago. The rule in my home was this, anything can come into my home as long as you can justify why it should come into our home. That goes for everybody. We talk in our family meeting, we are a Christian home, so we don't believe in Christian and secular music and all these things. It's, like, it's basically, should it come into our home? And you gotta make a decision. And so in grade four, we taught our kids how to go up to like an internet uh, browser and open it up, and my daughter wanted a song, I forget if it was Rihanna or someone at the time, and so we learned, taught her how to type in the name plus lyrics, and up pops the lyrics, and she would read through it. And it, quite often it was a lot of our sex education. And she said, what is this word? I'm like, it's a slang term for woman's breast. And she'd go, oh. And I said, do you want this song? And she'd go, no. There were moments that my grade four girl went, no. And I'm like, that's learning, right? That's her making a decision. I still know high school students who have to go through every song from their parents. How will they ever learn how to have discernment the moment they head off to college or university? And I do have entire books on media, faith, and culture, uh, and the faith component is a huge one, the idea of family discipleship. Uh, that's the idea of we have to look at how our worldview shapes our values, and our values shape our actions. Uh, and there's some really great blogs, which I give you at the end. And I got tons of stuff on YouTube. I have two full series that I've done. One's called The New Narrative uh, to talk about teens with technology. So it's phones, 
uh, social media, television, movies, music, that kind of idea. Uh, and then I have one, I'm three or I'm four in to a 15 part series called How to Have a Better Relationship with Our Phones. I think we all, we all need to get a better relationship with our phones. So I'm just going, like movies was my last one. Family dinners was before that. Before that we did touch and interaction and even just turning off notifications. Mental health we did this morning, and I really believe in the body, mind, and soul analogy. Uh, if you weren't here, you can uh, catch the, uh, the sermon on, on your website. And I do have some few books. The only thing I would add in here is a book called The Anxiety and Phobia Workbook. It is bar none the best mental health book I've ever seen in my life. You can buy it at a chapters or online. Dating, parents should always, we need to be looking ahead of the game. We don't start talking about dating after it's happened. We begin talking about dating before it's happened. So when my kids, I had friends beginning that kind of in grade three or four talking about dating, we talked very openly in our house and we made a rule in our home. You're not allowed to date till you're 16. And we just explained why. And my daughters watched her friends, boyfriend, break up, heartbroken, boyfriend, break up, heartbreak, just this never ending cycle of heartbreak. We've just said, it doesn't matter. There's a 0% chance until grade 11 you will ever meet your spouse. Those are the stats today, zero. You got about a 10% chance of meeting your spouse in grade 12. Now, parents, some of you met earlier, but it doesn't happen that way these days. Even when you get married, it's being pushed off and off. But we talk openly and honestly, and we set these boundaries. I have an entire talk, uh, an older one called Dating for Life on YouTube, but this is my newer one. I've given you four really great uh, videos from Andy Stanley, and my most viewed blog are questions to ask while you're dating. And it's like 80 questions to ask, not like over one coffee. It's like slowly walking through things. And I would say conversations on sex should be the normal rhythm of life. This should be common, not uncommon. There has never been a question my kids don't come and ask us. And they still come and ask us. And I'm so thankful that my kids, even as teenagers, will come and say, I heard something at school today. And when they ask it, we don't get weird. We just like... We just explain what it is, and we talk about it, and then it's kind of done. And pornography is the same. It's become the normal rhythm in our life. Uh, the bottom of the books is a book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. There's one called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Junior. This, these are books to help teach about pornography to younger, like elementary school kids. Uh, Gary Wilson, Your Brain on Porn, do you know the number one group of people in the world trying to break people free from pornography is 20-something non-Christian men? Because they're experiencing porn-induced erectile dysfunction, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. There's forums of a million plus people of these guys trying to figure out what to do. I think the church is actually behind the game in this conversation. We need to address it. Finances, teach your kids about money. Because I find so many students I talk to are just financially illiterate. When you give allowance, they can do whatever they want. You can do your different jars, like save, spend, and give. Has anyone ever had that work, by the way? Like, you give it to a four-year-old and it's like $2 in each and you come back and there's now $6 in the spend and nothing in the other ones. Like, but we gave our kids money. We always just said, this is going to the church. And so they knew it was happening. And then we let them do whatever they want. And when they were in kindergarten, they would buy like a Five Alive and a bag of chips at every swimming day they had. And then one day, you know those like double chocolate bars, the big huge ones? My son said, so if I don't spend this money and I save it, can I buy that next week? Delayed gratification is everything in money. And I'm like, yes. It was about five years ago. My son walks in. I'm working on my computer. I didn't even look. He said, hey, dad. And I'm like, what? He says, I want to buy a PS4. And I'm like, dude, they're 500 bucks. And he goes, yeah. Now you got my attention. He said, do you have 
He goes, I have $1,000 in my room. I'm like, I, I forgot to tell you about banking. Uh, my kids have had a paper route since they were about seven and eight, maybe eight and nine. And so my son's a saver. And so I went out and we bought him. And I did what my dad always did for me. If I saved well, he made it better. So I bought him the controllers and a few different things. I do think with money, though, we need to get our own finances in order. Uh, I'm not, Dave Ramsey is an American who talks about this stuff. Some of those things are different for us as a Canadian paradigm, but the idea of like, we need to like save more and we need to earn more. These are simple things that we can address, especially when giving, I mean, the average Christian gives less than 2% of their income to the church, meaning your Bell, Rogers, Telus, whatever mobile company you use is for the most part more than you, what you give to God's kingdom on a given month. Education, we need to help our kids navigate the education system, help each other navigate the educational system, and I believe we need to push kids and each other, and I sound like the American army, to be the best that we can be. I think for some reason we, we just settle into positions. So when I said earlier it's offensive to someone flipping burgers, you shouldn't be flipping burgers two more years down the road. You could be a shift manager. Like, I'm not saying everyone's got to go and become doctors. I'm just saying, whatever you're gifted with, I got a buddy of mine who does mechanics, but he never got his mechanic certification. He's just done oil changes at Jiffy Lube his whole life. And I'm just saying, whatever you do, I'm talking to a farmer when I spoke this in Alberta last summer, and he actually went and, uh, uh, what's the term, Sub- he, he rented the field beside him and now actually farms two fields. Buddy of mine's a heating and air conditioning guy. He put two trucks on the road this year. If we can earn more and save more, we can give more. And the church and organizations are desperate for people who can give and help and support things. But I just think we can all look at how we can become better in that. And drugs and alcohol are destroying us as a culture these days. There's a great movie on Netflix called Take Your Pills. I would challenge you all to see it. It's about the Adderall epidemic going on in our high schools and colleges and universities. If you don't know Adderall, Adderall is an ADHD medication we give to people with ADHD. It brings you down. Students are taking it now to just study for hours on end. I said that to my daughter. She goes, I, I asked her about Adderall. She said, oh, do you want some? And I said, no. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? She goes, well, my friend sells it. This is how our weird conversation goes. And I'm like, no, I, I'm actually, so I'm like, I guess some of your friends use it. She says, oh, a lot of them do. And we had a big conversation why she shouldn't actually be doing it. Two really good books, Joseph Califano, How to uh, Raise a Drug-Free Kid, and Gabor, I think it's Matei, because it has the accent on the end, in the realm of hungry ghosts. My website is what I gave this morning, uh, and if you go to it, uh, and there's some cards on the table, I have my parenting tab here, but on the end I have a new tab I just put out called Great Books. And so what I recently put up was every single book from this talk with direct links to Amazon, every single one. So if you want, and I mean, just go to Amazon if you're going to buy at a bookstore, great, but get all the information. And my goal is to, but once a month, put, put a list of each of these, of all the great books online. And I'm doing these weekly YouTube videos for parents. Can I challenge you to please have a Gmail account and sign into YouTube and subscribe to people? If you do and you're researching things, the YouTube algorithm will give you the same things that you're looking at. Social media is a mirror of yourself. Do you realize that if you're on Facebook? It's a literal mirror. I have to work hard to get dissenting views and opinions because it just gives me the people who like me. On YouTube, I'm very strategic and I like a lot and subscribe to a lot of different people, but just click subscribe and you can find lots of things. I do weekly videos. These are five, if you're taking photos, this might be one. There are five really good sites I would challenge you to actually get. 
One is called the Parent Queue. This is actually also an app. Uh, and if you download this, this app will do the marbles analogy for free for you right on the app. So you don't have to go and buy marbles. The Parent Queue is also weekly blogs. This is some of the most scientifically based conversations on kids in the Christian world today. People like Reggie Joyner and Kirsten Ivey, youth guys like us know this. This is the, like this, these are the best people you can find. It's all free. Growingleaders.com is great if you have a late high schooler, early young adult. CPYU stands for the Center for Parent and Youth Understanding.org. It is a free weekly email of where culture is, helping you connect with what's going on with modern culture. Plugged in is the Focus in the Family uh, website or app. It is great. Until middle school, I would switch over to Common Sense Media after that, just because I find uh, Plugged in is kind of made for younger families. And Axis is a new one. Again, these are free websites. A um, couple of slides and we're done. I know this is very overwhelming, and I want to help you decrease the overwhelmingness. I don't know if that's a word. I think I'm going to make it a word either way. So the way I'm trying to do this is, one, uh, I've committed to making videos once a week for two years on YouTube. If you have any questions you want me to answer in that, let me know, and I do that. Number two, the parenting tab. I read about 300 blogs a week. It actually takes me 20 minutes. They all go into an app called Feedly. They all come up and I just choose the good things that I want and I resend out to you on that the best things I can find. I've been writing a book for two years and we're just about to send it to our editor. It's 325,000 words. It's an eight and a half by 11, 700 page handbook for parents. I've realized I often get one touch point with a parent, one night where I get a chance to come and interact. So I'm like, if I got one chance, I want to give you everything that we did tonight in one place. And once that's finished, a small group curriculum will be coming out. Two slides. So where do you start? There's so much here. Uh, first off, I would say um, there's a new uh, song by for the band For King and Country, you might have heard, called Burn the Ships. Uh, if you don't know that analogy, when settlers came over, they would burn their wooden ships to the ground so they couldn't go back. I would just say with parenting, burn the ships and don't look back. We've all made mistakes, but look at where we can get better. John Maxwell always says when you're challenged by something that you need to choose just one thing to do. That's how simple it is. Choose one thing, but implement it within three days. Because if you don't do something, like tonight's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, by Wednesday, if you haven't done anything from my talk this morning or this, statistically, you never will. And if that's all it is, is that we come and we listen and we smile and we go home, that's really not the goal. The goal is change. I really love the idea of a catalyst, that I'm here to spark something under you, to push you forward in whatever area you need to move forward in. And so I would just say, from a parenting standpoint, support each other. I know some churches that meet once a quarter as parents, and they go do something like this, or a youth pastor talk, or they just talk about best practices. But support each other in your homes, in your small groups, as friends. Like, open up and be honest. When someone says, how's your kid doing? It's okay to say, Their OCD is rough, they broke up with their girlfriend, and they've just failed French. It's okay to just be honest, and then we can all together look at helping each other. But our parenting, uh, like our faith, is built in moments. And I hope that tonight has been one of those moments to give you some tips and thoughts and ideas. You will not take everything I did today and implement it within a few days, but choose something. And if I had to give you something, a family meeting might be it. There's just something about a family meeting to see where you're at and then moving forward. If you have teenagers or some middle schoolers, um, I recently put out on my blog a report card for parents, which you will print out, give to your kids, and they will rank you, and you can have a conversation. Talk about 
seeing if you're willing to do it. Uh, I want to leave you with the quote that I kind of began at the beginning of this talk, which is just the very simple line, they will not be with me forever, so I will prepare them accordingly. Thank you uh, so much for coming out. Uh, do we have got a couple questions? No questions. Let's just, sometimes I get questions. I, I was at a talk recently, I spoke on mental health, and a woman did a 15-minute uh, tirade that I didn't speak on abortion. It kind of ruined a bit of the evening. So if there are any questions I can answer right now, I'd love to. And if it's something that's more private and you want to talk for a bit later, come and chat with me at the back. But we do got a mic. Does anyone want to ask a question or comment or thought? Uh, uh, yes, I have a... I, I really enjoyed the... The whole presentation, but can you transfer at least a portion of those uh, qualities or steps, if you will, to to adults too? You know what I mean? Like, is there anything that you can? Most of it is made is geared towards kids, but can you take something that you uh, let's say that you had a, a disagreement with a good friend or something. Can you take some of those um, lessons and transfer them and maybe the next time you're, you're having a, a disagreement with an adult, can, can we be taught how to do it differently instead of tearing each other down? Like, you know, am I making sense? Are you just asking if some of these things can be translated for other friends as opposed to children? Yes. Then yes. Thank you very much. I no, I... I actually believe for parenting that one of the best things that we can do is to model, model this for our kids. I actually am writing my book. My wife and I have had, I say arguing, we're not arguing, but we've had these big discussions. So the first seven chapters are parenting conversation. But the rest of the book, I flipped how I wrote it, and I wrote it directly to a person. Meaning, if you want to teach your kids about mental health, live out good mental, physical, and emotional health. You want to teach your kids about dating, have a good relationship, Right? live out those things. You want to talk to your kids about drugs and out? Like, I think modeling things for our kids are paramount conversations. And those are things that we then help each other with as well. So I think that, of course, we, these things translate anywhere. We're just looking at it for our kids. I mean, there's no difference with our relationship with anyone, including God, right? Time, communication, like we need all of these things. Any other questions? The Raptors game's already over, so you don't have to worry about rushing home for that. Did anyone tape it, or do you want me to tell you if they won or lost? I won't tell anyone then. Sorry, question, go ahead. So I'm a homeschool mom. Yep. Um, some of the, uh, I'd say, labeling or uh, judgment that perhaps I've been noticing that keeps getting said to me um, is that my nine-year-old should have screen time. He doesn't have his own computer. He doesn't have his own telephone. Like, where did that idea come from? Is that something that I'm behind in today's age? Am I holding him back from something? I'm just uh, what, certainly... So how old, how old is your son again? He's nine. He has access to the computer. He certainly, there's it's a few touch phones in the house, 
he has a question, he does school assignments, there's access to the computer, he may use it. Mm-hmm. But does he have zone out, I'm in my box for three hours a day on screen time? No, he doesn't. Am I wrong to not give him that? I don't think it's an all or a none, though. I, him? Like, my son doesn't, like, it's not a, you don't have things or it's three hours. There are, um, I mean, what does your son do for fun then when he is off school and different things? Yeah, that's all good stuff. So all I would say is at some point, that learning has to come in. As a nine-year-old, like the new studies are coming out. Kids shouldn't be on screens up to five years of age at all, say most of the studies. Like, we've all messed up on this one. Like, you know, they say kids should not be, like we put, I put my kids in front of different TV shows when they were younger. You know, you need that little bit of a break. Like every study now says we all were wrong. We should not be giving screens to young kids. Um, I think we need to find a better way that it's not not having it or we're addicted to it. But at some point, your son's going to have to learn how to deal with those things because as they move on in life, like if he likes graphics and things and moves into those kinds of fields, he'll need to have a vast knowledge of AutoCAD, these other programs, as they head on for school. So if school is here graduating and heading off to college or somewhere, and this is where he is now, somewhere along here, there needs to be a learning of how to actually have some discernment with that so that they, he can be successful. What I've seen sometimes uh, is where a student doesn't have, like one was a mom said, I, we don't have TV in my house. Now, what's funny, some people say they have no TV, but they have Netflix. I'm like, it's the same, that's the same thing. But uh, some parents have said, like, we have no shows. And I knew a few kids who graduated grade 12 and went to university and just watched, like, it was night, because they never learned how to discern those conversations. So, you know, from great, from a nine-year-old to heading off to wherever he might go, there needs to be many learnings in that. And one of them is how to use technology better. So I agree with your authoritative parenting approach totally. Um, with one of my kids who's now 21, he wants to run the show. Uh, he wants to tell me what to do. Uh, what are your comments on that type of a situation? How would you handle it? How would you go about breaking that cycle? Sorry, can you say it again? I'm, it's coming out of the mic. He does not want to, te- to be uh, structured, disciplined. Mm. He wants to tell me what to do. So how would you break that cycle? And he's 21? Yeah. Well, I, the reality is, is that at a certain place, like, so Ron Morris would say that compliance begins when kids are really, really young. So I know we're talking about a 21-year-old, but compliance uh, is, so if you have a baby, babies, we are at their beck and mercy, right? We change their diapers, we give them food, they sleep, we burp them, that's kind of this. At a toddler stage, there's this flip that happens where kids learn that there are things that we have expectations from them, and that usually continues forward. Um, These days, like a 21-year-old, the truth is, uh, if they're not in school or doing things, they, the process should be in, well, then where, like, I mean, I remember my father said to me, we don't care if you do university, college, or whatever, but um, after high school, if you're working, we're going to look at getting you an apartment. That's part of kind of moving out. So to me, a family meeting would be a conversation with that, which is, these are our house rules. Like, I have house rules that continue on. Uh, I was with a mom recently, and she's like, my 21-year-old's drunk every night in our house, and I'm like, we have house rules. That will not happen in our house, ever. 
If my kid chooses to change, change that fence and make a different fence one day, I still will discourage that. But in my home, there are certain rules. But I would just sit down and have some open, like, build that relationship, talk about those kinds of things. I do think, too, uh, we as adults, like, I have no problem watching uh, a movie or I'll spend a couple hours watching television. But my son and most students don't watch any television, right? They'll play more video games, especially the young boys. And so sometimes it's more what we value like, it's all downtime, right? It's all, whether it's playing a game or, or on a, you know, an iPad watching Netflix, it's all kind of downtime. But I would just have an open conversation. I, I also just say this. These are ongoing conversations that never end, right? These are, it's just, I, I love having them and th- those kinds of things. You chat with each other, we get better at, and I try to post as much as I can online as well. But there's no more questions. Thank you so much for having me out. And I would say this, in a church like this, you have a great youth pastor and other pastors, and you can always find me online and speak to other parents as well. But make sure you use the people around you. Thank you so much, and I'll pass it back.